I think it's quite possible to see how in the next three to four years, 20 million more workers could be in unions and collectively bargaining all across the economy. And if we could get it to 33% of the American workers being able to bargain a better life, we would be raising wages and creating good jobs for everyone, not just union members. And that's the kind of power we need to create in this nation in order for the economy and the democracy to include everybody. Hey, this is Sean Morrow, host of Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. We've got a special episode for you today, something a little different. Over the past decade, the movement for a $15 minimum wage has gone from far-off fantasy to potential reality. And since 2020, the global pandemic has made lots of folks realize just how essential our essential workers really are. You know what else is essential? Workers organizing. To learn more about organized labor today, I spoke with the longtime head of the second biggest union in the United States. Mary Kay Henry leads SEIU, or the Service Employees International Union, a labor union with nearly two million members. Today on Who Is, it's a conversation with Mary Kay Henry. Yes, I'm Mary Kay Henry, the president of the Service Employees International Union and a backer of the Fight for 15 and a union movement. This is a question that's going to sound super simple, but what is a union? A union is a group of working people who have decided they've had it with their conditions and want to have a better life. And they join together and get recognized by their employers so they can collectively bargain over wages, hours, and working conditions. And then once that step happens, many uh, working people who are leaders in the union then become politically active. They fight for immigrant justice or environmental justice or all kinds of things that impact our lives outside of our work. So that's what a union is and what it does. So would you say generally union membership is a gateway to more activism? Do people that were necessarily not always politically involved, they get involved in their union, then all of a sudden they start fighting for what they believe in more? Definitely. And people get active through a myriad of experiences. Like we have registered nurses who volunteer to go help people that have been impacted by the earthquake in Haiti or the floods in Houston or the fires in California and Oregon and Washington. And that service becomes a way that they get active on climate change because they understand these aren't natural disasters. These are man-made events due to the warming of the planet. Other people get active because the union helps their dreamer, daughter, or son get access to public benefits, and they see the union as a way to advocate for themselves and their families. Or other people get active when they have a problem on the job. PPE was a big problem last year, not having enough personal protective equipment, and they saw the union as a way to join together and make a demand on their employers to get the protection they needed to stay safe and not take the virus home to their families. And thinking back, why did you yourself get involved? You know, I wanted to rebuild the city of Detroit um, because as a middle schooler, I watched Detroit burn in the late 60s. 
And as I was in both late in high school and early in college, I met union women who were lobbying to protect themselves from the hazards on the assembly line from reproductive problems that pregnant women were having. And I was just so impressed with how they lobbied the Michigan legislature and the change that they made for women on the assembly line that I realized that building unions was really the way to rebuild America's cities. And so I took a right turn to join the labor movement instead of finishing urban planning. Thinking of rebuilding, uh, which we're rebuilding right now. Well, this is what we'll be doing after COVID. Why are unions critical to rebuilding the United States after the pandemic, whenever it subsides? Unions, I think, are needed in this moment of economic, public health, racial, and climate devastation. Because when we exist in a large enough way in the economy and democracy, we are a check on corporate greed and self-interested politicians and can advocate to ensure that every worker, family, and community is respected, protected, and paid. And racial and gender justice is a real critical part of building a union, especially in a workforce that is increasingly women and increasingly people of color. Its unions are a way for workers of every race to get paid more, have better benefits, and to be safer on the job. And so looking from your overhead view, what is the biggest challenge facing workers today? I think there's two, actually. The overwhelming presence of corporate power in our economy and democracy is one challenge. And the second challenge is structural racism. And those two things um, have to be, we have to uproot systemic racism and we have to check corporate power um, in order for working people and every community to be able to thrive. And one example of this is Amazon. It's a global giant. They've had record profits during the pandemic. And as we speak, they're fighting workers' attempts to form unions all around the world. Uh, They surveil employees. They've been firing anybody who wants to lead on behalf of the union. They might have a union button on or be trying to encourage workers to vote yes. They're paying consultants nearly $10,000 a day to figure out every trick in the book to stop workers from forming a union. And that's what we're up against in terms of the challenge. And Amazon employs black and brown workers to do minimum wage jobs without benefits with temporary hours. And it's how kind of taking on corporate power as Amazon and backing black and brown workers is a way that we join the fights of eliminating racism and creating a more fair and just economy and democracy for everybody, not just for union members. I definitely want to get into Amazon specifically shortly, but I want to ask, how does a union help fight systemic racism? It's not as simple as just writing end systemic racism in a bargaining agreement or something like that. How do unions help fight these things? We fight it on multiple levels. One is individually in the workplace. Two is in our collective bargaining agreements. Three is in the political system. And then four is what we're trying to do right now with the Biden-Harris administration to address racial equity. So let me just take them in uh, succession. Individually, we've noticed that black and brown workers in many of our workplaces are targeted for disciplinary action. 
And here's one example. We have a mental health facility in Connecticut, and the union members there created data over the course of a year about how management responded to patient complaints about the staff. When the complaint was about black and brown workers, management had a higher disciplinary action than white workers who were given the benefit of the doubt. So we, as the union, can intervene on black and brown workers getting disciplined at a higher rate and make it fair for everybody. So that's one example. A second example is a a hospital in Seattle, Washington, just bargained over racial justice and wrote into the contract that they didn't want to allow the hospital to reassign people based on race. And they wanted workers of all races to be treated equitably. So one example is during a snowstorm in Seattle, nurses were able to stay in beds overnight when they had to pull a 24-hour shift. And the housekeepers, who were mostly people of color, were given blankets to lay on a conference room floor. So those are two ways in which the union can use our bargaining power to end disparate treatment or to force management to deal with patients who don't want to have a Asian nurse care for them. They want a white nurse and that we need to intervene on those situations. In the political sphere, our union has done lots of things in criminal justice, in housing, in education, in healthcare, to point out racial disparities and try and change policies. So we've ended cash bail together with lots of other racial justice groups in key cities and states around the nation, which disproportionately hurt people of color, that cash bail system. Or we're fighting at the national level to make sure the vaccine gets targeted to communities of color. So I just joined security officers and janitors in Sacramento who got access to the vaccine alongside of healthcare workers because they're on the front lines of the pandemic dealing with the public every day. And the union fought for that. These are undocumented immigrants that got access and black security officers, both of whom communities have died at too high rates during the entire pandemic. So those are just a couple of examples of the way in which we have to use our power in the workplace and our power in politics and our power in society to call out racism and to check it and end it in every way possible. Yeah, and on that note, when you mentioned something like like ending cash bail, what what's the link between unions and progressive politics? SEIU believes that you can't have one without the other. That unless workers have power through independent organizations, we can't have progressive politics. And workers' power can't grow unless there is a progressive politic. And $15 minimum wage, I think, is a great example of that. We had 200 workers walk off the job in New York City in November of 2012, demanding 15 in a union. They were laughed at and ridiculed. People spit on them when they were striking because they thought it was a bodacious demand. And now we've created a mainstream fight at the federal level about raising the minimum wage nationally to $15. That happened because workers had organization and backing from our union and many other organizations. But it also happened because Bernie Sanders ran on it in 16 and lifted it into the national discourse. The Democrats put it in their platform 
and the Progressive Caucus in the House actually forced a vote on it in 18, where it went to McConnell's graveyard in the Senate. And now it's a part of the national debate. And I believe because of the intersection of unions and progressive politics, we're going to be able to win federally raising minimum wages sometime this year. We'll be back after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today, we've got a special episode, an uncut interview with SEIU's Mary Kay Henry. What are some of the biggest opportunities for for workers and the labor movement today? What are you most optimistic about? I'm most optimistic about the number of workers in every crack and crevice of the economy who are taking action either going into the streets or going online, depending on what's safe in this moment, to demand more for themselves and their families. There's a woman in Virginia who's a home care worker. Her name's Joyce Barnes. She's an example to me of what gives me hope. She loves what she does. She cares for elders in their homes, but she's also exhausted. She works for two home care agencies, one where she makes $8.25 an hour and the other where she makes $9.98 an hour. She can't afford her employer's health insurance. She doesn't receive paid sick days or vacation benefits. And she's been an advocate for additional COVID-19 protections through her union with the state of Virginia, where they won legislative action to get additional resources for PPE, for paid sick time uh, during the pandemic. And she said, my union is what gives me hope. I learned that I had a voice. I didn't know I had power. And that's why I'm sharing my story. And I can tell you a hundred stories just like Joyce's. And that's the source of hope I have. And that's true for the Sunrise Movement and all of the activists that are demanding change on climate now, not later. Uh, That's true for the Movement for Black Lives, where 26 million of us flooded the streets this past summer, demanding actionable change, not just that corporations put logos up that say Black Lives Matter, but what corporate policy and what government policy is actually going to change to demonstrate that Black Lives do matter. And then I feel a lot of hope in the Dreamers and the immigrant movement that we are going to become a country that welcomes immigrants and creates a path to citizenship for 11 million people that have been blocked from voting and participating in our democracy. I want to go back to Amazon workers for a moment. It's the labor issue that's on the forefront of a lot of Americans' minds. They're fighting for a union yes. in Alabama. Do you think they'll do you think they'll win that fight? There's a the technical win and then there's the win that I think actually matters. The technical win would be when they count their ballots on March 29th whether the votes will say yes. And that would be what I consider a technical win. I would submit to you that they've won uh, by shining a light on the obscene profit that's been made during the pandemic on top of the obscene profits that were being made pre-pandemic, that they've made clear the sort of cruel and inhuman kind of speed up working conditions that occur in these warehouses. And it's not just in Bessemer, Alabama, but in every warehouse in this nation and around the world. And I think they're going to forever change the debate about whether workers who are underpaid and undervalued ought to have the ability to freely form a union without the employer firing them, 
threatening their livelihood, changing their schedules, uh, harassing them for wearing a button, that they are making clear to the nation that Amazon can still be profitable and workers can lead a decent life. And I think they're helping push putting a real check on corporate power in this nation. You've said that, quote, manufacturing was poverty wage work back in the 30s. It became the foundation of the middle class because workers unionized. We've touched on this a bit, but can you talk about how these fights are playing out today? Who are the manufacturing workers who will become the foundation of the middle class of tomorrow? I think it's service and care workers. It includes the Amazon workers we just spoke about. It's people that push wheelchairs and carry bags at our nation's airports It's janitors and security officers and nursing home workers and hospital service workers and restaurant workers and retail workers. But the one I'd like to focus on as an example is the home care workers. There's 2 million women, primarily Black, Brown, and immigrant, that are caring for our nation's elders and people with disabilities in this country. It's the fastest growing job in the economy. We expect there will be 3 million home care workers by the 2030 and then 5 million by 2050. We have to make this job a decent job that people can raise their families on instead of multi-generational poverty that currently exists. And we need to think about these women primarily, there are men that do it too, um, as part of our nation's infrastructure. They're in every zip code of the country. They're as important as our roads and bridges because they're making other jobs possible. If someone comes in to my home to care for my elder mother who has passed on, but as an example, it makes it possible for me to go work. And that's true of the 2 million that are currently doing it, soon to be 5 million as we head into the future. And it is how we will create the most racially diverse um, middle class this nation's ever seen. And Biden actually sees these jobs and understands how critical they will be to crushing the pandemic because it will take pressure out of nursing homes if we expand the number of services for elders in their homes. And if we make this minimum wage job a living wage job of at least 15, but then have the ability to join a union so they can bargain education and training and vacation and sick time and all the things that come with a good job then I think we can create a catalytic event for all the other, the 4 million fast food workers who also have crappy jobs or the 8 million retail workers that have crappy jobs and the 3 million warehouse workers that we just talked about. If we raise a sector of the economy, it will have a spillover effect and help catalyze raising wages all across. There's too many people in this country that earn less than 15 There's 104 million poor and low-wealth people where folks are working two and three jobs. And we just got to intervene on that structure and system that is both has a racist roots and is where our government's policies have let corporations off the hook. Taxpayers are subsidizing low wages in this nation in the form of food stamps, housing, Medicaid. And corporations need to invest in their frontline workforce so we can use our tax dollars on education and healthcare and things that make our lives better. 
And things are obviously rapidly changing just because of the way the world is. The COVID-19 pandemic has redefined what we call essential workers. Can you reflect on this, this phrase yes. essential workers and how it's changed? Yes. You know what I think of when I hear that name? I think of the times over the past year where I've heard a airport worker say, I'm called essential, but I'm treated as expendable. Or I hear a fast food worker who I struck with because she had to wear doggy diapers and everybody in her store was infected and the manager wouldn't let them go home say, I'm called essential by the public, but I'm treated as sacrificial. And so what is so amazing to me is that there's overwhelming public support for the work these folks have done because everybody now knows it's the glue that holds our society together and keeps things moving. And that folks have continued to show up and do their job in spite of being paid poverty wages and in most cases not affording health care or having two weeks of paid sick time. So they were really in a crunch when they got the virus and had to decide, do I give up my pay or do I just try and hope for the best and keep my mask on and keep working as long as I can? And those ridiculous choices is what I believe spiked the black and brown communities uh, dying at higher rates because we have more black and brown workers in minimum wage essential jobs that then went home to their families and carried the virus into housing situations where they're very multi-generational because it's what people can afford to get by. And so I just think it's made our union and the Fight for 15 movement and many of the workers that have risen up at this period say, we are not returning to normal. We are bound and determined to use our organizing and mobilizing and political demands to say that we're going to create a new, fairer, and just normal for everybody in this country. And that's what's been so pivotal about this inflection point of seeing essential work that's always been done in this country, uh, but has never been recognized. And that's why we have to use the pandemic as a way to create a new normal that works for everybody, not return to the inequality that has been so uh, tough uh, to change. Right, of course. The pandemic has made a lot of people aware of injustices that have existed for a long time. According to the yes. Urban Institute, yes. the American Rescue Plan Act could reduce the projected poverty rate for 2021 by more than a third. So as we're emerging from this pandemic, what are a few policy actions that could not only help America recover from the pandemic, but recover from being what we've been for decades, but reduce poverty and produce a more equitable future? Right. Well, we need to pass the $15 minimum wage as a structural shift because the American Rescue Plan is government assistance on ending poverty. It leaves corporations on the sidelines because it doesn't require them uh, to pay higher wages that is also a permanent way to reduce poverty, right? And then all of the things that were put in the American Rescue Plan that the Urban Institute cites are temporary. So the other action we're gonna have to take as a nation is to make all of those interventions on poverty a permanent part of our nation's policies. And that's gonna require, I believe, uh, taxing the wealthiest and the corporations in this country at a different weight so we can intervene on 
the poverty on childcare tax credits, on the income tax credit, the expansion of the Affordable Care Act and the reduction of subsidies so more people have access to health care they can afford. So those are the immediate policy actions. And then long term, I think we have to use government investment in home care jobs and child care jobs to make good jobs all across the service and care economy. That's a structural shift. And manufacturing jobs that I talked about 100 years ago being poverty jobs have also returned to being poverty wage work in the country. And so manufacturing and green infrastructure are the next big actions, I think. Like We really believe that trillions of dollars should be invested by our government right now to create 10 million good union jobs that will help catalyze the other millions of jobs in the economy and make them all better. So I think this is a time for the biggest, boldest, most transformational change this nation's ever seen because of the depth of the racial and economic inequality and because of the multiple crises of health, economics, race, and climate. The government and corporate actions have to be at the scale of intervention that meets the scope of the problem that people face. And while there is a possible big progressive moment, we of course are living in an America with a judicial system that was, you know, mostly appointed by the Trump administration at this point. I think it's some above half. So from the Janus decision to boilerplate right to work laws, can you talk about organizing in this increasingly hostile legal environment? Yeah. You know, I'm trying to think of a simple way to do this. There's been 40 years of attack on unions um, that culminated with those legal decisions that you talked about, but began with Ronald Reagan declaring that the air traffic controllers would be fired if they didn't return to work within 48 hours. And he reflected a very dramatic shift in, in a government that encouraged labor and management bargaining and cooperation. He basically unleashed a 40-year attack on unions that occurred by private companies hiring union busters to break up unions, by state legislatures who enacted laws that weakened unions and eliminated collective bargaining for public employees, or weakened the ability of unions to get members to join through right-to-work laws. And then the Supreme Court took cases that were uh, targeted by the Freedom Foundation and the right to weaken home care unions, to weaken all public employee unions. And that's occurred over the last 40 years. And in the last 10, you're right, there's been an escalation. Uh, We've seen the Midwest hollowed out. Just in the last 10 years, the labor movement's probably lost 2 million workers because of state legislative action and then another half a million through the Supreme Court actions. And it just gives you a sense that they're on the attack to shift from the 30% of union members that were bargaining in the 70s to now 10% in 2020. And when 10% of the workforce is bargaining, it no longer raises wages for the rest of the workforce because there aren't enough of us bargaining to push wages up for everybody. And that hostile environment and the level of inequality and the pandemic, I think, has catalyzed the biggest uprising of working people that I've ever seen in my life. Like 
Last year, we had lots of workers um, wildcatting and that they would just decide, even if they didn't have the protection of a contract, they were going to walk off the job and strike over health and safety conditions. We saw President Trump force the poultry workers back to work in Iowa. You know, he used the Defense Production Act that gives the federal government authority to do that kind of insane thing. So that was like the height of the hostility from my mind, because he was sending workers back to their death. So that's why this question that you're posing about challenge and opportunity is so important to stay focused on, that we really have to think of how to use the majority power of government at the federal level to rewrite the rules for workers to be able to join unions and for voters to be able to participate in our democracy. More after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. I'm here with Mary Kay Henry, international president of the second biggest labor union in America. Our show is about power, and you've pointed to these actions that Reagan took as well as more recent actions. How do these actions impact electoral politics? Well, um, if you think about Michigan and Wisconsin as two examples, Scott Walker in Wisconsin 10 years ago, I think in 2010, 2011, weakened unions in Wisconsin. And so a state where public unionism was founded, he eviscerated the ability of public workers, university, city, county, schools to be able to collectively bargain. So it it made unions pointless in the sense that we could continue to represent workers. Like our union used to have 15,000 members in Wisconsin. We now have 1,500. Just to give you a sense of the scope and scale, AFSCME and NEA way down. Wisconsin is a battleground. There is a role and relationship between working people being in an organization they trust, where they can count on the messages we're giving them about President Trump versus Joe Biden. And that's how it impacts electoral politics. It created the dropping of the blue wall in 16. And then we doubled down with organizing in 17, 18, and 19 in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, together with progressive partners in order to turn out a record number of votes of Black, Brown, Asian, and white working people who understood that unless we changed the politics, we weren't going to be able to rebuild workers' power in those states. Would you say it's fair to say that these anti-union attacks contributed to the election of Donald Trump in 2016? Yes. Yes. It wasn't, it was a number of, I would say it's the anti-union attacks and the attack on voting and the attack on health care and if you if you layer over, you know, which states didn't expand Medicaid when President Obama created the Affordable Care Act and which states overturned minimum wage actions of cities, you know, like Kansas City and St. Louis passed a $15 minimum wage, the white Missouri state legislature overrode it. All of these negative impacts, uh, it would be true on climate action, on criminal justice reform. Everything that we want that would make our lives better, including the attack on unions, was happening in these states that became the presidential battlegrounds in 16 and then again in 20. And that's why trying to think about workers' power and voters' power as being inextricably linked 
and creating the world we want to see, I think is so critical. And it's why we feel like of the 2 million members we represent and the millions more that we are backing for the fight for 15 in the union, we have to help connect the dots between being able to bargain a better life and needing to show up and vote for people that are going to use government to uproot racism and check corporate power. We need a government that stands with our communities and with working people in order to create more balance in the nation. So, of course, there's been and there always has been an an anti-union push for younger workers who may think of unions as being a vital force in the economy and the politics of the past. When generational upward mobility had largely evaporated, kids these days are cynical. How is labor the place where we can recapture the American dream? I think by winning, when people see that unions can make gains, they'll want to join. I think that's a big thing that we need to do. And so that's one. The second is by the labor movement uniting with the climate justice movement, the immigrant movement, the movement for black lives, across movements, seeing that our power and our issues are inextricably linked is another way. And then the third way is for all of our progressive partners to understand that unless working people can have independent power in the economy and democracy through an organization that they finance, you know, that's what's unique about unions. We don't receive money from foundations. We don't have donors that click online. We have members that pay dues every month to our organizations. And so we're one of the best resourced parts of the progressive movement. And the whole progressive movement needs to understand the kind of questions you're asking me and help fight to stand with workers trying to unrig these rules that have been, frankly, written since the beginning of our nation. You know, we're organizing workers who were excluded from labor laws in the 30s because Southern Democrats didn't want black workers to have power or didn't want immigrant brown workers in California, Arizona, and Texas to have power. And so a lot of workers that are excluded from the current labor laws were based on originally racial and gender exclusion. And so the whole movement understanding that and what we're up against in terms of the challenges and then meeting them with us, I think is a way for all of us to thrive. So one thing we've talked about today throughout all of these questions almost is how labor is a racial justice issue. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I would say our union has been on a journey around this for our 100-year existence. And we were a union that was born by immigrant flat janitors in the 20s in Chicago. And they were not given a charter by the AFL at the time because they weren't perceived as real workers because they lived in the basement of apartment buildings and their pay was their apartment. And so they essentially did the work from our perspective for free and they fought for 10 years to get paid by the building owners and finally made the breakthrough. They were all It was a mixed union in the sense of black and brown workers with white workers were joining together, which was unusual at the time. 
So we have a deep sense that unless we unite the fight for racial justice with economic justice, we can't win on either. And all of our organizing has been about bringing excluded workers in. Security officers didn't have a legal right to form a union. They're primarily black workers. We fought for 20 years and they now have joined and we now represent 50,000. We're on our way to organize and represent 60,000 more. All the janitors in commercial real estate now are undocumented immigrant workers. And the union becomes their vehicle for winning both wages and citizenship, as an example. Home care workers, which is our current kind of priority fight, primarily black and brown women, a lot of Asian immigrant women. The union is the vehicle for people to join together in the fight. So I think that's the, I think continuing to press on building workers' power while we also fight on every issue that matters to workers' lives is the essence of why our union has taken on uh, racial justice and why our union voted last June to support the agenda for the movement for black lives and then to take actions inside our union for how we can take down structures and procedures that are based on a white supremacist model and outside that we think about everything that we advocate for about how do we center black and brown communities in the government's policy or challenge the corporations. Like we're having a major fight with McDonald's. They think they're the best first job in America and actually they hold majority black and brown workers in poverty generation after generation and they have the resources to do better. So those are the um, ways in which I would say even in our union, we are trying to strengthen the ways that we are meeting the racial reckoning of this moment and helping and making our union across race think about the ways in which we're going to catalyze uprooting systemic racism. And what is Unions for All? It's a demand by the Fight for 15 and a union movement and by SEIU members and other parts of the labor movement that every worker, no matter what job they do, whether they're legally determined to be an employee or not, ought to have the right to be able to join a union. And we have four concrete actions that we think government and corporations should take to make that possible. So connecting a lot of the dots that we've talked about, you've said, quote, unions for all will build the power to win all progressive policies. In terms of what we've talked about today, what can we look forward to? Well, I think green infrastructure and the elements of the Green New Deal that are embedded in green infrastructure connected to jobs in that massive government investment that are union jobs is one key thing we can look forward to. I think investment in the caregiving economy where home care workers have to be in a union in order to raise wages. I, I think we have an opportunity for the first time in the history of the nation to make sure that Medicaid dollars that flow to states that care for elders we say to the states, these dollars have to be used not just to expand services for elders and people with disabilities, but also to invest in good jobs that are done by the providers. And those providers ought to have the ability to form a union. And that that's a condition of the state receiving the Medicaid dollars. 
in airports. We've invested billions of dollars of taxpayer money and corporate dollars of the five airlines in revitalizing the nation's airport infrastructure. And meanwhile, we've trapped uh, millions of workers in poverty jobs in our nation's airports. We think unions for all ought to mean that you can't revitalize your airport and create a 21st century airport without creating 21st century jobs for every worker in that airport. And that means you have to have good wages and benefits and the ability for baggage handlers and cabin cleaners and wheelchair attendants to form a union. And our best thinking about that is they ought to be able to unite across airports and we ought to be able to have a national airport workers union that bargains for everybody all at once because it's the same federal tax dollars and the same five airlines that are financing that system. And then in fast food, we think McDonald's, Wendy's, and Burger King ought to sit down at a national collective bargaining table like they do all across the world and make those jobs the best first job in America for real and allow black and brown workers and white workers a living wage, secure benefits, education and training. So it is the best first job and people can train up and out of those jobs that they've been locked into. Those companies could unlock economic mobility for 4 million families, just those three companies deciding to behave differently. So those are the kinds of things that we think are possible when we unite unions for all with the Green New Deal, with the movement for black lives, and with the demand for 15. And again, our show is about power. Simply put, how does what we've talked about translate into real power in the economy and in politics? Well, currently there are 17 million workers that have access to collective bargaining in the country. And if you took the sum of our conversation today, I think it's quite possible to see how in the next three to four years, 20 million more workers could be in unions and collectively bargaining all across the economy. And if we could get it to 33% of the American workers being able to bargain a better life, we would be raising wages and creating good jobs for everyone, not just union members. And that's the kind of power we need to create in this nation in order for the economy and the democracy to include everybody. And this is a fun one, but if you were doing this interview, what would you have asked? Mm, I think I would have asked me about the leaders who make the vision that I see possible uh, reality. The one thing about a union that I don't think I've helped uh, illuminate is the power of when people join together, their inherent leadership is unleashed And they then understand that anything's possible and that everything is better in their lives. Because when you are a fast food worker who is humiliated by your boss and told that you've got to hold a sign up that said, I made a sandwich a wrong way, and that supervisor then puts that photo of you on an Instagram feed Uh, to humiliate you. But then that same worker figures out, I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm going to fight for 15. And he joins together with other people and then realizes people are listening to him and following him. 
and then he runs for state rep of Missouri. That's the kind of power of the union movement that I don't think I've spoken to. And that's what I would ask me about, is the way in which each and every one of us is capable through our own intelligence and leadership to join together with other people and make dramatic change in the nation. Um, on a similar note, we have this massive audience of young people who are becoming politically cognizant for partially the first time. So is there anything that we missed that you'd like to address that you would want this audience to know? Just my immense pride and inspiration in the young people that are taking action. And I would say that I feel like I'm following. That the students that marched for our lives after the shootings and then made it a multiracial fight, the students that joined together to spark the Sunrise Movement and sit down in the speaker's office and kind of say no more, the black young people that escalated the movement for black lives, both in Ferguson and then after George Floyd this summer, I think are the leaders of the change that has to happen in the country. And as a 63-year-old white woman, I'm proud to follow a multiracial movement of young people that I think are the hope uh, for the future of this country. That was Mary Kay Henry, International President of the Service Employees International Union, or SEIU. Next week, we'll have another full-length interview, but we won't be talking about organized labor. We'll be talking about the possibly existential risk you might have forgotten about while preoccupied with pandemics, climate change, and societal unrest. Nuclear weapons. Join me and Joan Rolfing, president and COO of the Nuclear Threat Initiative, for an in-depth conversation on the state of nuclear weapons around the world today. This has been Who Is, a podcast from Now This and iHeartRadio. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. And Mona Hassan is our writer. This episode was edited and mixed by Stephen Cooper. Studio support from Pedro Alvira and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president, and Tina Exaros is our chief content officer. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe. And hey, why not? Tell your friends. If there's someone you'd love to see us cover, feel free to reach out to me on social media at SNMRRW.